Do you like a little magic in your books? Is your reading reality a fantasy lost in the stars? Well, then you've come to the right podcast. I'm Lauren, and I love fantasy and sci-fi. Join me as I pick the brains of fantasy and sci-fi authors and industry pros on the worlds of these beloved stories. Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast. In today's episode, I chat with mega-author Christopher Paolini. He is best known for The Inheritance Cycle, which started with Aragon. Christopher has a brand new book set in the world of Alagazia, and he sat down with me to dissect the stories and talk about revisiting these familiar, nostalgic characters. This episode is brought to you by the Shirtigal Store on Etsy. Stay tuned a little later in the podcast to hear all about these amazing Inheritance Cycle-inspired products. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast. Hey, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. So we are here to talk about your brand new book. It is out on December 31st, and it is The Fork, The Witch, and the Worm, Tales from Elegasia, Volume 1, Aragon. It's a long title. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful, isn't it? It really is. So kind of in your words, give the pitch for the book for those listening who are maybe Inheritance fans but don't know what the book is about. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's hard because I haven't really developed the elevator pitch for this book as well as the other books, but I will give it a shot. Okay. The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm is set after the events of the main inheritance cycle, and uh, you're going to get to see Aragon and Sephira and a number of the other characters that hopefully readers have come to uh, love and enjoy over the years. And that's that's a lot of the framing device of the book is with Aragon and Sephira. And then we'll also get to meet new characters. And uh, the idea is was ultimately to sort of take a tour of the world of Alagazia under this sort of overarching story. And there is an overarching story. So there are dragons, there are battles, there is magic. There is, of course, Aragon and Sephira and... Yeah, I think it's a really good book, actually. But I am the author, so I <laughs> tend to say that. Well, for those of you listening, I got an advanced copy, and it is delightful. That is the word I've been using to describe it. It is a perfect blend of new and nostalgia. I liked it. I knew I was going to like it, but I liked it even more than I thought because it was just like, oh, that and this and this, you know, like these little, little things. And we're going to get into that. And, and, we sh and we should preface this by saying we're going to be spoiling everything, basically. Yeah, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about this book. So if you if you don't want anything revealed to you, don't listen until you've read the book. It's a 260 page book, but it's a tiny little thing. It's like a half the size of a regular book. It's actually quite cute. So it shouldn't take you too long to read. It's it's a it was a good like took me a couple afternoons and I I've been just enjoying it. So um, you can put this down and come back and listen. Or if you want to listen and then go and read, you can have a little maybe more understanding to the stories. So I, I actually have to defend the the size of my book. That sounds horrible, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is believe it or not, this is a short book for me. But this the Fork, the Witch, and the Worm is actually longer than the first Narnia book. Okay, so the re the reason I bring this up is because when I was working on it, for a good chunk of the time I was working on, it, I was thinking like, is this really a book? Do I have a book here? Is there a full book? And then I started looking at word counts of, I mean, I knew the story was a full story, but I wasn't sure how the length was going to be. And then when I started looking at word counts, I was like, oh, this actually is a book. As a credible fantasy book that has existed, this is longer than that, is what you're saying. I mean, not by a huge amount, but enough. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's so, it just was a pleasure to hold. It was a pleasure to read. I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I kind of want to just dig into the creation of this book. Talk to us about creating it. How did it come about? 
because you said there's an overarching story and then there's basically three short stories that are related but unrelated. Mm -hmm. So go into the creation of this little book for us or this not so little mm. book for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was actually a lot more complicated than most of my previous novels. I mean, my usual writing method is, you know, get an idea, plot it out, outline it, and then sit down and actually write the sucker in sort of an extended writing session that usually stretches out over a couple of years, a year or two. But in this case, it was really the result of the fact that I keep thinking about the world of Alagazia, the world of Aragon. You know, like many of the readers, I'm sure, you know, the characters have stuck with me, the world has stuck with me. And I also just spent so long working on the inheritance cycle back in the day. I mean, it was well over a decade of work. Yeah. A decade of work during some of my most formative years. So yeah, it, the characters and the world really burrowed deep into my brain. And in the years since I finished the last book of the cycle, Inheritance, I keep daydreaming about the characters. I keep thinking about them in the world and thinking, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder, you know, who's 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 up to this? What, you know, what Murtag is up to and what Aragon's up to and what Sephira's up to and what's happening here? Oh, and wouldn't it be cool if the first story that was written uh, was actually the last story in the book? And that came about about two, two and a half years ago now, or two years ago, my sister and I, uh, my sister Angela, who's also wrote the middle story in the book, yeah. she and I watched a movie which was not particularly good. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to be diplomatic and not name the movie. But <laughs> okay. we, we, we watched the film and both of us had deep, issues with the structure of the film. And so we were discussing it and dissecting it as is our, something we often do and sort of like picking apart what was wrong with the, the structure of the story and where it could have, it could have gone instead of what they actually did. And as a result of those conversations, I kind of got inspired to write a story about a dragon where the dragon was not a kind, nice, somewhat humorous dragon the way Sephira is on occasion, but, you know, a dragon in the old mold, you know, the dragon as the destroyer, the dragon as the force of nature. And that's where then the Worm of Kolkaris came from. And I've always wanted to write more about the Urgles. The story is centered around the Urgles. And that, that came together pretty fast, actually. I think I wrote that in about a month and then uh, let it sit for a while, came back to it about a year, you know, six months later, and did some revisions and editing. And so that was the first story. And I had that laying around then uh, for a while. And it was a pretty long, short story. I mean, it is. It's long enough you can categorize it as a novella. It's literally half the size of the book. Like I started it and it, I noticed I was uh, literally a halfway through. So it's, it is a nice, yeah. chunky story to read. It is. And it's uh, sort of the idea with it is that I wanted to be able to tell a complete story without taking up multiple volumes. That was the other challenge for myself because I've, I had never done that as an author. You know, it was always, oh, I'm going to need seven, eight hundred pages and multiple volumes to tell this story. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's a complete story from from start to finish. It, it could easily be expanded into an even longer work if I wanted to. But I also feel like the way I wrote it is the length that needed to be. But the thing is, it wasn't really long enough to publish on its own, so it just sat on my computer for a while. And then this year, 2018, uh, around June, I want to say, June or July, I kind of got a 
I kind of got a, a, a little itch in my brain wanting to write another story set in Allegasia. And this one is the first story in the book, uh, The Fork. And this actually came about because of a tweet from a fan. Uh, I have this down here. I'm like, tell us the origin story because I know it. And our yeah. friend Mike, who actually was supposed to be on the podcast with us today, he um, he's deathly ill with the flu and probably is currently in urgent care while we're recording this. So, Mike, we are thinking of you. We have discussed that you're hoping to feel well. But Mike even told me the origin of this. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And he's like, no, this is the truth. And so <laughs> that is my first note is tell the origin story of this story. Well, this is why you need to be careful being around writers, because you say things to a writer or around a writer, and you never know what they're going to pick up and use. And in this case, it was a it was a fan who, oh boy, it was like last year, I think, who tweeted me and just asked, you know, hey, what what's Murtag up to since the Inheritance Cycle finished? Tell us what Murtag is up to. And I was feeling in a, in a rather... Uh, sparky mood so i just kind of tossed off a comment like that he was um, busy fighting off a group of en enemies with an enchanted fork named mr stabby yeah <laughs> i was like and that just okay. stuck in my head it's really dumb and really funny and when you read the story knowing that's the origin you just go how do we get here but it's really fun that you were able to <laughs> take that snarky tweet and create this really sweet and awesome little short story yeah, and, and that's that's basically what happened because when I started thinking about how to actually write the story, because it stuck in my head and I kept thinking like, hmm, I wonder if I could write something with a magic fork and Murtag and all of that. The thing is when I wrote the tweet and when I was originally thinking about this, it was, and this is major spoilers, so um, uh, <laughs> if you're not interested, uh, turn off the podcast. Bye. But I originally envisioned all of it written from Murtag's point of view. But it just wasn't as interesting that way, which is why I then decided to do it from a different character's point of view, and that's how we ended up with the story we we did. And it's not as jokey as the the tweet might have made it sound. It's, it is a serious story. It is it a is. sweet story. And yet it still has a magic fork named Mr. Stabby. Yeah, but it kind of, like you said, it gave me the feels a little bit because it was about imparting knowledge and the struggles of youth and also like man talk about hitting you over the face with nostalgia holy crap i'm reading this going okay so we have first of all the name of someone who has died and i'm like wait i thought he died what's happening and i'm like i literally was like i thought this person died i don't understand and then i was like oh okay i see what's happening and then you bring in the little flying ship that Arya made all those eons ago comes and mm -hmm, pays a little ship. visit which was like so sweet well there's there's some things i don't want to give away quite yet for future plans with the world but yes i i don't think that's the last we've seen of that little grass ship but the, the problem is when i wrote the first draft of this this murtag story and uh, i i described the grass ship i forgot i forgot because it's been so long since I've reread some of the books myself that I've actually had two enchanted grass ships in the inheritance cycle. Uh, the first one was when Aragon and Arya were returning to the Varden after Aragon kills the Razak at Hellgrind in Brissinger, and then he's returning on foot through the Empire back to the Varden, and Arya comes and joins him, and they have the encounter around the campfire yeah. with the spirit. All of that. So that's where she makes the first grass ship. And then the second one is at the end of Inheritance when she sends a message to him saying, come, come meet me out, out in the, in the plains, which is where we meet Fiernan, the green dragon. Yeah. So that was the second ship. And that one doesn't 
isn't still around, I don't think. I forgot but, about that second one, actually, because you're right. Exactly. I'm... I was thinking of the second one, and I described it, and then it was actually my assistant, who has a very keen eye for these things, who very gently pointed out. She said, uh, you, you realize you've got the wrong ship here? And I was like, oh, fiddlesticks. Good thing you saw that. <laughs> it was really sweet, and it was sweet to see there's these three short stories, but then you're like the in-betweens are literally Aragon doing his thing mm -hmm. in the new area, trying to get his, you know, the new dragon holdings and everything under. And, you know, his life is mundane to him now because, you know, it's like boring stuff. And he's, you know, so there's these intersperses of interesting people coming along and stories. And so having that be told to us in a story and then him also experiencing it and then reflecting on it was really cool to kind of get get to see it, but then also have him think about it too. Well, and I just kind of found it interesting too, which is, you know, the story ends when the hero finishes their journey and yeah. defeats the, you know, the antagonist, whatever the antagonistic force happens to be in the story. And then the question is, well, what's it like after that? You know, what, what happens when life keeps going and you still have to live, right? And what does that feel like if yeah. you were the sort of person who was out leading battles and, doing all of these crazy things and now you're in a new phase of your life which seen from the correct point of view is just as epic and just as uh, moving and powerful but it is different it is a new phase of aragon's life and it's mm -hmm. something that he's 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 grappling with and i think that's something we all deal with at various times in our lives you know the transition from 100 yep you know, high school to college or college to your working life or single to not single or, you know, having a child. There, there's so many of these yeah. transitional stages we have in our lives. And then we, we often sometimes look back and go, well, huh, now what? Yeah. Well, and I, I guess one of my main questions that I wanted to ask about the whole book really was when you were writing these, both the short stories and the transitional parts, how did you decide what to pull from the old stories to throw in that dose of nostalgia? Was it just the ship just came into your mind as you were writing randomly? Or were you just like, oh, I got to bring the ship back before you even started? Uh, I, well, the ship is something I've wanted to do for a while. I've actually had the idea of doing a series of short stories tied together by the ship oh. as it wanders around in Algazia. And so I used that a little bit here. Yeah. And as far as everything else, I mean, I, I was, honestly, I was just really going off my gut. You know, I was going off what I wanted to see, what I, yes. what, what made sense for this book thematically, because the, the individual stories are fairly disconnected in terms of actual subject material. They are connected a bit thematically. And so that's what I was looking for. It was, what was, what was the through line? You know, what was, what was going to tie it all together? And then those are the elements that I added into the book because those were the elements I needed. And then, then the middle story, the witch that actually came about because my when I was finishing up the Murtag story, my sister said, uh, "Hey, I've got an idea for a story about Angela the Herbalist." Oh. As many readers will know, the character of Angela the Herbalist is I actually based her off my sister Angela, who fortunately yeah. has a good sense of humor about it. <laughs> uh, and she, my sister, has provided a lot of dialogue and amusement and inspiration with the character over the years, but she's never directly written that character before. And my sister has a distinctive, a really distinctive writing voice. So it seemed appropriate to do the, the Angela sections from first person so that that difference in voice would make sense within the world of Alagavia. And I think she really, I think she knocked it out of the park, honestly. The, the framing chapters with Aragon 
uh, are ones I wrote, and then the the first person was Angela. She wrote the short story, the Angela short story. So I kind of wanted to know then a question with that story or sec- section number two. So you said Angela approached you, but did you kind of provide the framework, or did she say, "I have an idea, I'm going to write it, and you just let her go to town, and then fit it in around the world"? Or how how did that kind of come into this the this little it book? It was it was it was about half and half, or maybe maybe a little bit more than half on her on her end she had the basic idea for the the angela story you know okay. doing it like the autobiographical thing and then i because i was then starting to look at you know how to fit all of this together into a single volume then i i came up with some ideas for how to tie it in with aragon and that's that's what we did then just because you know i know the world about as well as anyone does at this point, aside from maybe my assistant. But <laughs> so I was able to give Angela some context for the character and for the the scene that she wrote. But uh, the inspiration was all Angela's. The concept was Angela's. The writing was Angela's. And you know, it, I think it was she did a great job because it's a really difficult thing to come into someone else's world yeah. and write in someone else's world with someone else's character, especially one as well-established as, as this one. And yeah, it was a lot of, lot of fun. And, you know, and she, my Angela's one of my first, usually my first reader. So she also provided enormous feedback on the Murtag story, the Worm of Chorus, and a lot of her very insightful edits are the reason why those stories are as good as they are. I think the voice works perfectly. I mean, because even if it was completely bizarro and off of, like, <laughs> left field, it's freaking Angela the Herbalist, and everyone would go, yeah, okay, sure, she's nuts, or whatever, you know? And it is bizarro, because there's, like, skipped chapters, and we get hints of and glimpses of her life, mm-hmm. but it's written very well, it's written beautifully, it's, it's intriguing, and it's very Angela, and I mean that in the double entendre. There's both of them. <laughs> it is very both of them. And uh, yeah, it's a great like middle section to the book because it's a little more esoteric, but it's still uh, storytelling. It's still mm-hmm. taking us to a different place. It's still making you wonder, okay, what does this mean? What do we know? What is she not telling us? Why did she drop those clues and all, all of that? So it's definitely got the, you know, it was an enjoyable story, but had a, had me thinking as a reader too, going, oh, okay. I got to say before we move on, you this section seemed to have a lot of meat with with um i don't want to say foreshadowing for future books but <laughs> yes you're laughing cuz i guess that's true i don't i mean you kind of have a little bit of that happening through all of them but cuz you leave us on literally the biggest cliffhanger ever and then you have a little like foreshadowing in section 1 after the murtag story cuz it's like mm-hmm. there's a crazy guy ranting about things and you're like well is he what is he talking about so there's all these little things but Really, Elva, man, we get a glimpse, a really good glimpse into Elva and and to see her again. And, you know, I mean, she's a fan favorite and just her story is so interesting from how it evolved in, in the first four books and and a whole other kind of new way of her evolving now um, is being seen here. And that must have been really fun to delve into. Very, very fun. And in general, these are self-contained stories. And I think even someone who has not read the inheritance cycle previously could pick them up and enjoy them on their own. But at the same time, they are doing some, some heavy lifting for future things that we, that we both want to write in this world. And yeah, I mean like (laughs) the, the Murtag story could easily be the first chapter of a a Murtag centric book. And don't think I haven't thought about that. (laughs) So yeah, those, those are all, those are all things that I've been, we've been, Around and they are they they were all intentional, and you know it was very freeing actually for 
both for my sister and for me to work on, you know, stories that were shorter, that were not six, seven, eight hundred pages mm-hmm. long. It it gives you a freedom. It gives you a, a lightness and a looseness that lets you, uh, you know, share these stories in ways that probably would never happen yeah. if it did take that amount of time, like with a full size novel to actually write them. And there are a lot more things set within the world of Allegasia that I want to share with readers, stories that I think people are really going to enjoy that otherwise are just going to have to stay locked up in my brain because I just don't have the time for them. Well, and in doing it in this fashion, it you know, especially with the connecting parts, it gives us a glimpse into continuation, immediate continuation. But then you have these other stories of like Angela was writing her life. So it's in the past and the Ergo story is kind of in the past. And so it gives us a glimpse in, in depth into the world, but it also allows you to kind of keep the story momentum moving forward as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with future volumes, cause it is volume yes. one, I think with this one sort of establishing what we're trying to do, it's something then that I'll be a little more free to experiment with the form uh, in future books. You know, there might, the stories might be a little more disconnected with future ones. So we'll, but we'll see, we'll see. Uh, I am a I, I am a long form storyteller at heart, so I do like to tie things together. Like I said, it was a really good balance for fans of the book. I mean, you know, people who love reading giant, you know, what do you call them, door stoppers? <laughs> we always joke about those books that are like eight thousand pounds. You know that they're they're that's a whole that's an, a time investment. These are kind of like what you're saying on the writing end, on the reading end too. It's it's less of a marathon and more of just playing. You know, play time. You know. I've I've actually been talking about this at convention some of the conventions I've been going to uh, over the past year, which is I as a reader and as a fan of science fiction and fantasy, I mean I have enjoyed more than my share of doorstoppers as a reader over the years, and I will continue to as a reader over the years. But I as, as I've gotten older, I've become increasingly convinced that a book needs a really really good reason to be over. 300,000 words long. And uh, for, for context, um, for example, I'm, I believe like the last uh, Game of Thrones or Ice and Fire book was about 400,000, over 400,000 words, for example, just to give you an example of size. I, I know like The Hobbit is about 75,000 words long. Aragon's like 156,000 yeah. words long. Inheritance was right about 300,000 words long. You know, and I look back at some of the classics of sci-fi fantasy and people manage to tell huge epic stories in books that nowadays would be considered medium length if that. With The Wizard of Earthsea. You actually turned yeah. me on to that book. You were the one who told me to read it and we had a really good discussion about them because I had never read Ursula Le Guin and I was like, okay, and I could not believe how much was packed into these teeny tiny little books. But then I shouldn't be surprised because like Susan Cooper and Madeline Langell are some of my favorite authors of all time. Mm-hmm. So 60s, 70s fantasy writing is, you know, good for a reason. It's more concise. And I mean, again, there's, I agree with you. There's a place for well, length. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they do different things, but, but also when, when the, when a series is, you know, many, many, many volumes and is going to take all, many, many, many years mm-hmm. to finish, yeah, then I, I start as a reader, start asking myself, you know, does the story really support 
this amount of words? And sometimes the answer is yes. And those are wonderful, wonderful series and worlds to, to lose yeah. yourself in. But I, I've become increasingly fond of self-contained stories or books that are a little shorter these days. Um, you know, and also just because my, my time is a little more limited. But, you know, when you're, especially when you're a teenager, I think when you find a book from an author that you love and it's part of a huge series, yeah. part of a huge world, there's a special magic in just losing yourself in that. And it's like, oh, I get to read this one author and nothing but this author for the next six months. Yes. It's not quite the same because these books aren't necessarily massive, massive, but I'm currently rereading The Dresden Files. Mm. And yeah, how many books are in that series? There's currently, I think, 15 that are published, plus wow. a bunch of short stories. And he's got a game of, I think, 20 with a three book end game is what I think I remember him saying. But yeah, it's a, it's a journey. Like I'm actually... I'm like, oh my god, I forgot how many of these are, and I'm I'm enjoying it, but yeah, I'm not. I'm having to like squeeze them in around my podcast reading now because I'm. Mm -hmm. How long have I been reading them? I've been doing them on audio, but like I'm only on book ten right now or a book eleven, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so, only. Yeah, I know, right? And yeah. I'm still like listening all day, almost all day, every day. So. Yeah. So so again, writing these shorter stories was a really fun exercise to. In, in an exercise in economy in storytelling, I'd say that the the biggest difference going from a big epic like Aragon to something that's equally as epic but not as long is basically just how much you delve into the moment by moment experience of the character. You know, the emotional experience of your characters is just as important no matter the length of the story. But how much of the like minutia of physical experience you're you're telling to the reader moment by moment as the characters go about and do things that's that's that tends to be what makes a book larger so it was it was an interesting experience, and of course, then you you do sometimes if you really are going for a shorter story, you have the tendency to indulge in that old sin of telling instead of showing. Yes, but you know what? Telling isn't always bad either. There's a reason why so many of the the fantasy or sci-fi books that we love actually had narrators like the hobbit has a narrator yes i actually did huh, i am ashamed to admit this but i'm relatively new to the patrick rothfuss series i hadn't read it until like a year or two ago and i made a point to listen to the first book and i'm so glad that i did because it's basically him telling us his story and I was like it's the mm -hmm. best ever because I felt like I was sitting by the fire and I was hearing this dude's epic tale from his mouth and it it, it worked for me obviously there's a lot of showing in that as well but it in, in essence it's a guy telling his tale over three yeah. days you know what I mean or whatever mm -hmm. well and one, one of the things that I have learned myself and that I now tell aspiring writers which is if you have a book that you want to write a story that you want to write if you can't now, I'm not saying you have to do this, but you should at least have the ability to do it theoretically, which is if you can't sit down and narrate the book like a campfire, tell the story like an old storyteller. If you can't do that and make it entertaining, you don't actually enjoy you don't you don't actually understand your own story. If you start going, well, and then things happen or well, and then this sort of happens, but it's exciting. You don't really understand your story. And I've, I've found that thinking about stories in that sense and that old storytelling sensibility has been very helpful in clarifying what needs attention in a book and what what doesn't. Well, and to kind of tie into our third section, the Urgle tale is, the, I would say, the most 
accurately told in that traditional fashion. I mean, he's obviously one of the Urgles is telling the story to Aragon around a fire and the way it is phrased, it is very story storytelling in style. And even though I'm in the midst of it and stuff's happening, I definitely felt like it was an old tale that I was experiencing, which was really cool. Can I can I just say that I'm I I know we're we're discussing spoilers and we've already discussed spoilers, but I'm so used to not discussing the projects that I'm working on because they're not released yet that I'm actually like physically uncomfortable actually discussing the spoilers. Really? Because I'm so disciplined in you know on Twitter and social media, you know, never never give out spoilers, never got spoilers, and so it's it's like I'm 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 having to fight that urge to just go well, no comment, no comment. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the the Urgle story was definitely something I wanted to do in the old storytelling tradition. And actually, in the first draft of it, there was no framing device. It was just the story itself with sort of an anonymous narrator, which actually confused some of my early readers because they needed more context for, you know, like, how does the magic work or how does this or, you know, are we are we even talking about Urgles? Because in the story itself, they don't refer to themselves as Urgles. Yeah. And don't you reference the call as like the anointed ones or they're anointed or something? There's like a, they have a separate phrasing for the different names. And even I think in your bridge, that you wrote Aragon gets some clarity he's like were these those things like he references like scary monsters and you know but yeah. in different phrasing different verbiage that yes. he was was used so yeah I could see that the context helps but again even the story in and of itself knowing it was set in that world was still felt it felt like old-fashioned storytelling because it was like man against beast <laughs> you know like and the interesting thing is that I only realized after the fact like after the the manuscript was pretty well finished is that all of the main stories not counting aragon's story which ties it all together all of the main stories have female protagonists yeah didn't even think about that yeah which i actually have a note that i thought it was really cool that the ergo was a female just because you know i think that was part of the breaking of a stereotypical understanding that you kind of helped in the whole original story was them not just being these idiot oafs who are just awful but they actually are beings that are worth understanding and mm -hmm. hearing it from a, a woman's point of view or a young girl and then having emotion and you know f all these feelings and and pride and and remorse and revenge and all these wonderful human emotions even though they're <laughs> not <laughs> i don't know what else to call them you know just emotions but it was really insightful and it was yeah it was a, it was a good read but yeah i actually that was a note i made it was i liked that she was was a female. Our, our little heroine in that book was was quite a scrappy, awesome female. But yeah, all three, I didn't even actually make that connection. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't guarantee quality in the slightest any more than having all the stories have male protagonists. But uh, I, it struck me after I had the book pretty well finished, I was like, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. I hope you're enjoying my interview with Christopher. Before we continue, I just want to talk about this amazing Etsy store, Shirtical Shop. It has all sorts of cool bookish swag inspired by the inheritance cycle and is a great place to grab bookmarks, jewelry and keychains and other cool things inspired by this series. You should definitely check it out if you're a fan or if you have a fan in your life you want to get a gift for. So go to Etsy.com and type in Shirtical Shop. Shirtical is S-H-U-R-T-U-G-A-L. Okay, now back to the interview. So, okay, so you left us with quite a few cliffhangers and lots of good things happening. 
are you just kind of hoping down the road as, as inspiration strikes to write some more short stories or do you have like volume two plotted out in your mind or I have more material than would fit into volume two. In fact, it, it, so for volume two, it would be more a question of narrowing down what exactly I was going to mm. include versus what I can include. Gotcha. Volume two is going to depend on other things going on in my life in terms of larger books, everything else, and of course, the long fabled book five. But I had so much fun working on The Fork of the Witch and the Worm, as did my sister, that it's something that I kind of want to do on a semi regular basis. Um, you know, this is the sort of book that I can write in three months, yeah. basically. You know, three, three and a half months if uh, if I know exactly what I'm doing and there are no distractions. And that's the, that's the sort of thing where I might very well just, you know, every other year sit down and turn one of these out. Or you could even say to yourself, you know, maybe within a year, every, every year you're going to try to do one or two just for fun short stories on a trip or on, you know, free your mind or – because your that world too. is so fleshed out that you can just kind of go, too. who haven't I, who, whose mind haven't I, haven't I played in yet lately? Uh, you know. Well, that, but that, but that said, if I were to, if I were consciously sitting down to do volume two now, um, instead of doing like a bunch of completely separated short stories, I would really try right from the beginning to look for mm. a through line. You know, whether that's a, you know, something thematic or a, PO, a point of view character to tie it together, just something something to give it some cohesion and some of the shorter stories some of the short stories i want to write are long enough that one story itself might be the length of something like the fork the witch and the worm you might get volume two and it might just be one story entirely so gotcha okay cool so it's something that is definitely on your radar is basically what you're saying yes very much so and you mentioned that sort of mixture of you know, nostalgia and new things. And I, I felt that myself when I was writing, yeah. you know, like the first few, I mean, it was as, as fun as the other stories were to write. Then when I sat down to start writing the, the Aragon sections and I wrote the first page and I was just getting like tingles down my spine of, of returning to his yeah. point after all these years. And it, as I said, in the acknowledgements at the end, it was like slipping on an old glove you know it was comfortable it was fun yeah it's, it's one of the things i've enjoyed writing the most in the past i'd say three years so definitely something i want to keep doing and as a reader i like i said even in the in the stories the aragon thing kind of i don't want to say freaked me out but i was like oh my god i'm reading aragon's point of view again <laughs> like it was it weird it was yeah. like oh my god like i didn't think too hard going in i knew obviously it was an inheritance cycle and allegasia stories and but then I was like, oh, crap, him and Sophia are chatting. This is awesome. Like, my mind just sort of went there, which was yeah. – it was really cool. So that's that's awesome to hear on our end that you enjoyed it, you know, that it was a pleasure for you also that you, yeah. you know, visiting these characters that you created. Well, I mean, because the thing is, it's like I, I don't really have to think about who they are yeah. or what the world is. It's it's so burned into my brain. It's all it's all there, which – it means that it's very easy for me to write and sometimes easy is nice. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully too, uh, readers will feel like my writing style still fits with the inheritance cycle. I did do one or two things consciously a little differently than I did in the main cycle just because, you know, I have learned technically a few things, right. <laughs> about writing in the years since, Yes. but I was still trying to keep that original flavor also, which I know is part of what people enjoy about the series. Well, and I mean, I even think there was a, there was a comment where like, Safira talked to Aragon at the end of the Urgle story and was like, 
I'm happy about what happened with the dragon, you know? And she would like, her reaction was, duh, dragon. I'm, that's all I care about was the dragon is. And he was just sort of like rolled his eyes like, yeah, okay. You know, like it was very much in character and was very, um, yeah, it was great. Okay, so then what are you working on actively now? You've been, those of you who are fans, Christopher's very active on Twitter, if you aren't aware of that. He is probably your most active social media, I would say, by far. Definitely. Because the problem with Instagram, and I don't know why they don't change this, is that you cannot post from your computer. It's meant you can... to be a quick phone uh, yeah, thing. Just... I know, that you would think being like the second largest day would make it easier. I get it. Yeah, and I and I hate typing on my phone if I can avoid it. <laughs> so I, yeah, I tend to... I tend to post a lot more on Twitter than I do on Instagram. What am I working on? Well, if you follow me on Twitter, Instagram, you'll know that I've been wrapping up a rewrite slash revision of uh, the big sci-fi novel that I've been working on for a few years. And I'm finally getting to the end of this revision process and hopefully should have that wrapped up in the next month or two. The only the only sort of stumbling block I have is I'm going to be touring for Fork Witch Worm uh, a bit in January and a bit in February. So I have to work around that but i'm right mm -hmm. at the end of this re these revisions and uh i've been printing them out as i go along and giving them to my early readers to make sure i'm not getting too far afield and everyone's saying the changes work Good. so uh, assuming i get a green light when i finish this this these revisions then uh we should be working to actually get get the book into the stores then at that point i mean it'll still take a while it's a big book it is a proper big book it'll need to be edited it'll need to be you know i just need to go over it and look at it and polish it up as much as possible so yeah. that's always a process but uh we'll be we'll be then actually on the track to getting it into people's hands and it is it is a big story it's a full-on space opera full of spaceships lasers aliens explosions and tentacles lots of tentacles oh cool so a bit off the path of what you've done before but something fun i'm sure uh, not really. That's the funny thing is, is what I'm discovering is it doesn't really matter what I'm writing. I could be writing a romance novel and it's still going to have my feel and I have my own private obsessions and yeah, my own style. Yeah, your writing style and your the way you voice things. Yeah, oh, that'll be really cool. I mean, I'm sure it was fun to break away from ways of writing that maybe had to feel more fantastical and explore things that maybe were more on a scientific end. I'm sure just writing that was refreshing. The nice thing about it it let me use a mod my modern vocabulary, yes. which uh, there are so many words that I restrict the use of in the world of Allegasia. Like, like simple example, I don't even use the word backpedaled because that comes from using a bicycle, a bicycle or, yeah. you know, the phrase end of the line, which refers to a railroad track or in short order. Well, I don't know. Do we have short order cooks in <laughs> Allegasia? I could see there being so dwarf short order cooks. I won't lie. <laughs> And of course, the thing is, is that you, I mean, Tolkien referenced locomotives in The Hobbit at one point. So it's not like you have to be completely obsessive about it and yeah. you need your work to be understandable by a modern audience. But it's something that I restricted in myself and paid attention to a lot. And as a result, writing the science fiction was like this big breath of fresh air for me. It's like, oh, now I can use words like car. And... <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That'll be fun to experience. I'll be, I'm really interested to see how much of, like you said, your voice comes through in this new book. So that'll be fun for readers and people who are fans of your work to kind of experience, I guess, your writing in a, in a new way, um, which is and, really cool. And just like the stories here in The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm, even though, yes, there are cliffhangers and there are, there are um, hints of other things uh, with the sci-fi thing, one of, the, one of the things I've been really 
working to do, and one of the reasons it's taken me as long as it has, is that I'm trying to tell a complete epic in one book, one volume. Oh, it's not a series? No comment. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was hoping. I was really like, we're going to get through an interview with one no comments. Oh, man. No, you... no, no comment. Uh-huh. But but I'm, I'm trying to do something that I haven't done before. Gotcha. Okay. And it's... <laughs> presents some unique challenges, but I'm enjoying it immensely. So one, one thing I do want to mention with about Fork the Witch and the Worm is that I did do four pieces of new art for the book. Yes, they're really neat to be interspersed. I've actually found myself flipping back as I was reading to as soon as the connection clicked, I was like, oh, there it is and was able to see it and appreciate mm-hmm. it a little bit more because of the detail I could actually notice the detail that must have been so much fun to create those it, it was although it was one of those things where it had to be done all last minute as usual oh, yeah. uh, but but it was i'm very happy with how they turned out so we have the the map of course but the map is in color it's really cool in color yeah yeah so that was drawn in pencil and then colored in the computer and then there's a piece of art for each of the three main sections of the book so yeah i think we're actually tweaking the way they're reproduced in like reprints to make them a little darker because uh, sometimes the way, way it happens with printers is maybe a little light. But uh, that's that's the artist in me talking. So ignore me. No, it, it's a nice little gift book. It's a nice little treat. It's kind of cool that you were able to pull your art into this book, too, which is really neat. Mm. Yeah, the difficulty is the third image is a drawing of an Urgul horn and uh, a twisting horn is incredibly difficult to draw without reference, so I actually ended up having to sculpt it in clay to get some reference before I could properly draw it. Oh, I can see what you're talking about. Yeah, how like the the seams go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. but it's very cool, huh? Before we head out, what is there anything else happening this year for fans that are fans of yours that might want to keep their eyes out for? Well, there is a special collector's edition of Aragon coming out. Uh, well, it, it'll be out by the time this, this podcast is released. The collector's edition is coming out from Barnes & Noble, and it has just shy of 50 pages of extra material in it, wow. including uh, all sorts of art, original concept art uh, that I did for the series back in the day, all sorts of background material on the world, the characters, the languages, some early editing from Aragon. Uh, but probably the coolest thing is there's a chunk of deleted scenes from oh. Murtag's point of view. Murtag's point of view. Yes, and these were in the original self-published edition of Aragon, but then they were removed during the editing process with Random House and have not seen the light of the day since, and they're very, very difficult to find. So I thought fans would enjoy seeing that. And that's really cool. the BNN edition has a full-color map of Allegasia. Wow, with, so it's really got a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, and it's not super expensive either. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for for this, and I'm really, really happy with how it turned out. So that's coming out. That's going to be out, along with The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm. Uh, hopefully there'll be more news about the science fiction story, uh, the science fiction book, uh, before too long also. And you said you're going to be doing some touring. You said, and I'm sure schedules are being figured out, but um, so fans will have a chance to come and say hello and get their stuff signed, and you'll be you'll be out and about this year, I guess. Exactly. I'll be uh, touring pretty consistently next year, and yes, there'll be lots of lots of opportunities for people to come say hi, get their book signed, ask me questions, and do all of that. Which is, you know, I really I really enjoy that. Uh, writing is 
sometimes a very lonely profession. You spend a lot of time hunched in front of your computer or your pad of paper, however you write. So it's nice to get out on the road and you know, actually meet people who've read the books and hear what they have to say and yeah. not just do it all through social media. I usually like to ask my authors before we go if there's any good books they've read. If you like it, let us know. It's like good to I always like to give recommendations from authors if there's anything good you've devoured. Funnily enough, well, I haven't been doing as much reading as I'd like recently because of everything that's been going on. Editing. <laughs> but funnily enough, my agent gave me a book recently that I read and quite enjoyed. It's called uh, Kings of the Wild, and that's wild spelled with a Y instead of an I. So Kings of the Wild by Nicholas and I'm going to butcher his last name, so I apologize, Nicholas, but it's Nicholas Eames or Ames, E-A-M-E-S. And it's really – it's a really fun fantasy book. The The conceit is that there's – in this fantasy land that he's created that bands of mercenaries are basically treated like rock stars, like actual rock bands. And so the story starts with these these sort of older guys who are having to get the band together. Oh, God. It's awesome. It's so much fun. And and it's <laughs> it is it is gritty without being grim, which I really appreciated. Huh. So it was an enjoyable read. That's funny. <laughs> I, it, as long as as long as you're willing to accept the central conceit, you're going to be in for a fun ride. <laughs> that does sound fun. I'll make sure we link to that. Awesome. So. I, would, I wouldn't necessarily give it to a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old if you think about you might tell about a rock star band gotcha. on the road. But uh, other than that, I, I would have no problems giving it to anyone. Oh, good. Okay. That's cool. We'll have to check that out. Thank you for that. And thank you for chatting with me today. I'm, I'm so excited that you were able to sit down and talk about this book. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think fans are going to just love it. Like I said, it was like nostalgia out the wazoo while <laughs> still keeping me captivated with the new story. It was, it was a pleasure to read. And it was... Um, I think, like you said, the balance of the, having a little bit of art in there, it's just such a nice book. Uh, I, I really hope that fans love it as much as I did, and I really think that they will. So thank you for, for talking with me about it. Oh, my pleasure. It was really a joy to talk about this. This is the first actual interview I've gotten to do about the book where I've been able to talk about spoilers and what actually went into it. Oh, awesome. uh, I hope, yeah, and I, I hope that readers are going to enjoy it and have as much fun with this book as I did. Yeah, and it hopefully is not going to be another seven years before readers see a book from me. <laughs> I promise it won't be. Thanks, guys, for those of you listening. Thanks for tuning in. And next week's podcast episode is actually going to be Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner talking about the second book in their new sci-fi duology. And I just want to thank Christopher for stopping by, and we'll be here next week. Bye! Bye!